0: 1 John 1, 5 through 2, 2. John writes, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, I'm not very good at math. I'm thankful for math. I'm thankful for those of you who use math in your jobs to make things for me. But I'm not very good at math. I've taught my son, I think, one plus one equals two. It may have been by rote that he learned the answer. But I was proud to announce to Christy that I taught my son to understand math, as though that's all there is to it. Of course, somebody will pick up where I left off. It is about as far as I can get. But as math goes, and as it gets more complicated, and as it's used in different disciplines, really every discipline, maybe but mine, um, you get part of an equation wrong, you get the whole thing wrong. Done a little bit of graphic or sorry web design where a lot of code, zillion characters, and a comma in the wrong place it might mean the whole thing just goes berserk. Oh, it's like that way in math as well. And in many of your jobs, one piece wrong and the whole thing is wrong. Everyone who believes that there's any order in the universe would agree with that when it comes to math. And the same is true with soccer. As a young man playing in the Eagles from Crystal Lake, Illinois, maybe you've heard of us, I was determined. <laughs> I was determined to do what my mother had told me to do, and that was to kick the ball into my goal. And much to the amazement of my entire team and the other team and my coach, while I had never really taken the ball and done anything aggressive with it, I took the ball and I kicked it into my goal. And it was my first goal in soccer ever, and it was a goal for the other team. My goal was the goal with the guy with the jersey on it that matched my jersey in my mind. I was foggy in my own mind as to what was going on in the soccer field all throughout those years, multiple years. I think every week I was right or left wing, and every week as we were assigned and deployed, I would scurry to ask my buddies where right or left wing was. And when my mom gave me that clear direction, I thought for sure I knew what to do, and I knew exactly what not to do. I was deceived. Well, getting... Getting one thing right in math or in the soccer field doesn't mean that you get everything right. But oftentimes it's the case that if you get one thing wrong, everything is wrong. Surely this must be true for pilots, for surgeons, for military generals. How much more than is it true for those of us who captain an eternal soul? Each of us in this room, captain, an eternal soul. One that will never die and one that we will have that is us for all eternity. Well, in his first letter, John wants Christians to know that they are Christians and he wants them to grow as Christians. A huge part of this is getting sin right. Christians have an entirely new understanding of sin and a new attitude toward, towards sin. In fact, one way to know that you know God is that you know what sin really is and you don't love it anymore. At least like you used to, even if you were tempted by it from time to time and indulge in it. You do not love it anymore. It is not your life. In other words, Christians get sin right and get better at not doing it. That's one way of talking about Christian maturity. If you're not a Christian, this is a great sermon for you. John writes in part to clarify who is, who knows God, who is a Christian, who does not know God, who is not a Christian. My hope for you is that it would be patently clear to you that you are either, that you either know the Lord and you can rejoice in that, or that you do not know the Lord or have not known the Lord and that you would be troubled by that, spooked by that, frustrated by that, and then flee to Christ. And all of our answers for hope are in our text this morning. Praise the Lord for a clear Bible. Well, the sermon will fall off in three parts. First, we'll look at a point from verse 5. And then the second point, which will be our longest, will be from verses 6 through 10. And the third point will be from verses 1 through 2 of chapter 2. In each point, getting it, what it means and what is required for us to get sin right. He mentions John does the word sin or of sinners or sinning nine times in these eight verses and it's a central burden for us to understand what it is and to be properly oriented to it and properly oriented to it, then oriented to God properly. And so the first point is this. True Christians see God for who he is. True Christians see God for who he is. Notice this point is a statement of fact that true Christians really do see God for who he is, but there's also a sense in which this point and each of the points is also a command of sorts. We should all the more see God for who he is throughout the Christian life. First John 1 John 1.5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So in this section where he's going to mention sin nine times in eight verses, he has one verse that really stands at the head of the entire book. And it says, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you. And what is that message? This is the message. God is light. And obviously then, in him is no darkness at all. A is not B. B is not A. A is A. John is a good pastor. He's going to speak frankly about the dangers and the deceptions of sin, but before he does, he sets our attention on God. And this is what the scripture does, and this is what preaching should do. Set our minds on the Lord. And this is what John is doing right here before he turns our minds to the nature and deceitfulness of sin. And this is where a right understanding, really, of anything gets its start. It begins with God. God is, we could say, our true north. Everything keys off of God. God. I didn't grow up near mountains, and because of this, and because of my gender, which I can't help, I have a terrible sense of direction. I've always had a terrible sense of direction. I can't tell which way is which. I I haven't even really cared that much, as long as I know how to get from A and B, Uh, Early in our marriage, I realized that Chrissy and I were different uh, one, one in, in many ways. Uh, one way was in that she loved maps. So whenever we'd go on a long trip, even if it was from St. Louis to Chicago, which is pretty much a straight line, the map was out in her lap, and her finger was on the map, and it would go like this. See a sign? It would go like that. The craziest thing in the world. Um <laughs> Terrible sense of direction, but as long as I know how to get there, I'm okay. Well, God, God is like the Sandias to Albuquerque. He's our point of reference. He's our true north. He tells us where we're at. He's our reference point for what is good and true and beautiful. But an even better illustration than that, although it kind of works, really is the picture that John and God has given us, namely that God is light. Then to state the obvious, in him there is no darkness at all. Light in this text is kind of used synonymously with truth, and it is in other places throughout the Bible as well, but light is a picture that does a few things for us in describing the nature of God as truth. It's clearly a metaphor, that should be said. I had a friend once suggest that maybe God really was light, and he clicked his flashlight on and off to make sure that I understood what he was talking about. He means light, and he said, of all the things that we understand in the universe, light still kind of eludes us. We don't really know what it i think bible says god is light maybe he's light no he's not light god said let there be light and there was light he's separate from everything that he's made and in some ways it's a very inflated view of human learning and ability to say that something that we haven't figured out must be divine so no god is light but he's not light he's like light And why did John choose this picture? Well, first of all, he got it from Jesus who said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. In fact, John's own gospel begins with a similar summary statement of his whole gospel in John 1, 4. In him, Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. God is light. Jesus is light. They're bright. They shine. Light is what they bring. Excuse me. In this, in this imagery, they got from the Old Testament, which spoke of the Messiah as coming as light and of God Himself, himself as light. But more to the point, light has certain qualities. So, why, did, why is this imagery used here? Well, light has certain qualities that are helpful in revealing God to us, helping us understand God. First, light reveals, it, la- it tells the truth about what is there, it tells the truth about danger. I'm sure you've noticed that it is hard to see in the dark. This is a universal human experience. And so light and dark is a great illustration. God has baked it into his world and he has given it to us to understand him better. The only thing you can see better in the dark are the stars, I think. I couldn't think of anything else. Maybe the stars and the moon. Everything else is dark. In walking in the dark, you can be deceived easily into thinking you're safe when you're not safe. There can be a wild goat in front of you, not know it, bump into the wild goat, There could be a cliff, there could be a low-hanging limb. If you're riding the bike in the dark and you don't have a light on, you are maybe in trouble. Uh, A swarm of gnats or small flies will get caught in your face. The darkness is where unexpected things happen because you can't see in the dark. You need light to see. There are different dangers in different places, and without light, you can think you're safe when you're really in danger. Kids are scared of the dark for good reason. They imagine that something dangerous might be there and things that are dangerous do lurk in the dark. Light reveals danger for what it is. Light reveals danger and light also reveals a right path for what it is. In the light, you can see where you're going. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Isn't that true? God's word is a light to our path. God's word tells us the truth about the world we live in. The dangers... The joys, where all of it's found, where safety is found. Even if with our broken spiritual and moral perception, it doesn't look the way God's saying it, He is always right. His, his word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. This is what God is like. He reveals, He tells the truth about what is there. He's a revealing God. He's also a happy God. Light is happy. Isn't light happy? Who hasn't drawn a smiley face on a sun? Children are born thinking sons are happy. In the same way that we smile instinctively, you know, I, uh, I'm not sure how it works, but we don't have to be taught to smile when we're happy. There are some other built-in things to the nature of the world, like brightness is happy and darkness is sad, and the sun is ha- God has made light for us in a way, in part, so that we might know his joy. He even describes His creation is reflecting his glory as the sun leaps across the sky like a bridegroom rushing to his wife. It's happy. It's full of joy. God is full of joy. He is happy. And he gives happiness. Light is also pure. You can see through it. It drives out darkness. There are no impurities in it. It expels impurities. And God is not part good and part bad. He's not unstable. There's no ill motive in God. Everything God does and wants and wills is always Good. God dwells, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.16, in unapproachable light. So what is the dominant image then of God in your mind? A.W. Tozer famously said that the first thing that comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The first thing that comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Is he a storm cloud? He hides himself in the dark, surprises you, ruins the day, a cosmic killjoy, unstable, unpredictable, dark. Is he overcast, a little bit of dark, a little bit of light, mostly gloomy? Or is he light, revealing himself on the path of life, a cosmic joy giver, pure in all of his desires and deeds? I hope he's that for you. If we're to know God and grow as Christians, we need first to see God for who he is. And that's why John here, as he's about to unravel a number of lies that we believe about sin and how those keep us from knowing God and deceive us, he starts first and here at the head of his book with a statement about God. And he summarizes his message as a message of God as light. And in him there is no darkness at all. True Christians see God for who he is. First, and second, true Christians see, sorry, hear lies for what they are. True Christians hear lies for what they are. Now, John is big on practical living. And that's why he started with the doctrine of God. And we might not usually expect that. Doctrine's over here and being practical is over here. We like things that are practical. We don't like doctrine. Or maybe we like doctrine and the practical is just light. Well, For John and for the Bible, and for God for that matter, they're intertwined and interlaced. The two are inseparably tied. It only matters how we live because, well, God is light. And we only know how we're to live because, well, God is light. And in him there's no darkness at all. And now in verse 6 through 10, John outlines several lies about sin we might tell ourselves. And each lie is an evidence that the person who tells it and embraces it wholeheartedly and lives by this lie does not know the Lord. Jesus says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks and will be judged for the things that we say. And each of these lies are framed up as things that we say. We tell ourselves. If you really truly believe any of these, you do not know the Lord. So be prepared this morning, maybe if you thought that you were a Christian this morning, to find out from the word of God that you are not a Christian. But don't be discouraged in that if you want to be one. If you want to know the Lord, because this passage is packed with precisely what you need to find yourself saved by the time the message is over, if you'll only believe. John probably has in mind here, as he unpacks these lies about sin, some people who he wrote about in 1 John 2.19, only a chapter later, they went out from us, he says, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not have continued with us. They would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. So there have been some characters in this church that have professed Christ, maybe had roles of leadership, influenced, liked, um, and they're gone. they abandoned the faith. And with them, they've left a number of lies that they've been telling themselves and perhaps others. And here John is pastorally writing to address the lies that have been swimming around perhaps in the air after their departure. And there are three lies that Christians must reject. Each of these lies is a denial of the real problem of sin and therefore also a denial of the true nature of God. And they're framed up with an if-then, if we say then, if we say then, if we say then. Here's the first one. The first lie is that my sin is not a problem with God. My sin is not a problem with God. Verse chapter 1, verse 6, If we say we have fellowship with him, And we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. This is a lie about the seriousness of sin, and it's a lie about the nature of God. It says sin is not in conflict with God. It says that God is not in conflict with our sin, is not bothered with it, can mix with it. John says the same thing a different way in 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father but is from the world and the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever The lie is fantastic indeed It's like a cat saying I'm a I'm a bird That cat, no surprise, is lying to you. He is not a bird. It doesn't make any sense. In fact, he knows he's not a bird, and he can't fly even if he can jump. And so our sin, our lies about sin are fantastic, and sin is kind of like a factory of lies. It's born out of the father of lies. Sin is deceitful by nature, and we even believe lies to explain and justify ourselves and our sin. So it's a fantastic lie, and yet it's quite believable. It's as old and well-documented as well. I like how one commentator put it. John puts his finger on perhaps the oldest syndrome of the human fallenness in all of Scripture, uh, and certainly one of the grimmest. Here it is. Claiming the spiritual or moral high ground when, from God's viewpoint, we languish in some pit. So, are you languishing in a pit if you're honest with yourself? Because in this case, this is a lie somebody tells, and they know the truth. Claiming to know God, happy to project themselves a faithful Christian, but really in love with the world, walking in darkness. Think of Adam and Eve's blame shifting, it goes back a long way. I said it was well documented. They hid from God immediately when God came to find them in the garden, giving them the opportunity to confess, asking them where they were. Uh, The finger goes to Eve when God speaks to Adam. God speaks to Eve, the finger goes to the serpent and God lays out the curses just as promised. Think of Cain's lack of remorse after killing his brother from envy. No remorse there. Think of Joseph's brothers and their unflinching sale of their brother Joseph into slavery. No remorse. Think of How Aaron blamed God's people when confronted with leading them into false worship. Think of Jeremiah's words about God's prophets during his day in Jeremiah 5.31. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. And think of all the hypocrisy that Jesus confronted and how front burner that was for him and in the authors of the gospels to show the deceptive nature of sin and how easily deceived even the very religious can be. So maybe you're a regular around here or another church in town. Or maybe you've been a regular in church in general. Or maybe you just love to talk about God at work. But you're living with someone. You're outside of, you're also a gossip. You have a list of sins that are in your mind okay and God's okay with you for them. If we say God and I are good and my sin isn't really a problem in our relationship, then really there's no relationship there. There is no relationship there, and you would know it. Here's how it might sound on your lips. My relationship with God is good. I'm good with God, and I will continue sleeping with this woman. Or God and I are on excellent terms. He understands why I'm angry all the time and why I say the things I say. It's how I am, and he accepts me as I am. Or how about this? God loves me, and I love God. God is love, but I will never forgive that person. I hate that person. Hate actually is part of what John is after After here in chapter 2, 11. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. If you nurse, love, and live in hate, and it doesn't bother you that there's a conflict with your hate with God, it may be a sign that you do not know God. If we think our spiritual relationship with God is one thing and our feelings about people and our life down here in the body is another, then we did not get that idea from God. We just made it up. And sometimes it can take a while for the lie to show itself. I had two good friends from high school. I was there when they, uh, I'm part of their like early marriage story where they remember liking each other. And we all hung out. And I think we went to Denny's or something. Um, they got married Mid, mid-college and were married about seven years. Both professing Christians, went to church. She got a job in sales, a uh, little rough patches in marriage, started confiding in some girlfriends from work, got a little more quiet at home, a little more confiding with girlfriends at work, picking up a few more shifts out of the home more, hanging out with friends in the evening from work, not at home. Eventually she comes home and gives him the ring. Now, my friend wasn't the husband that he could be. He has great grief over uh, the ways that he could have led more faithfully. Um, It's not on him, though. She should not have given in the ring. She should have pursued reconciliation, confided in her Lord, Christian friends, not her friends from work, and in her husband. But she left him. Um, She'd say... She was leaving town for some girl time with her girlfriend. She just needed to get away. This was really heavy for her. She's going to such and such a city. The company she works for has a market in there. You bet. She's looking for a job. She's scouting out an apartment. She's gone 30 days later. Went to counseling just to say she went to counseling. She had her whole checklist to feel good about it. All the while, she's saying she's a Christian and that God is okay with this. In fact, God wants her to do it. There's no infidelity in the marriage. There was just displeasure, unhappy, the cares of this world and the desire for other things which Jesus talks about. were are choking out the word in my dear friend. And then uh, some Christian friends were discussing how to address this. We did a number of things and one friend was I could tell he was um, didn't have a lot of backbone and so he didn't like the conflict of the whole thing and said um, Has anyone asked her about her relationship with God? I mean, maybe we could just bracket the whole marriage thing and, you know, this and just maybe somebody get her out for coffee and just say, how's your relationship with God going? As if you can separate the two. My friends, that's impossible. So I pray that you're not in a position where you are running from the Lord's clear word and yet feeling safe with him or projecting that you're safe. According to the word here, it's a lie that we tell about God when we say there's no conflict with our sin. And with God, I I became a Christian in a context where to become a Christian was honestly to embrace uncool. Immediately, you were uncool when you became a Christian. I had no category for Christians are normal, non-Christians are not normal. I spent a couple years during the mid two thousands in Louisville, Kentucky, kind of the north of the South Bible Belt, and I was working in a company with a number of friends who didn't know the Lord, praying for them, witnessing a whole bit. Uh, and then Facebook kind of picked up mid 2000s, you remember, and I got an account. I found out all kinds of my friends were Christians that I had no idea were Christians. Frankly, they would never tell you. It never occurred to them to say anything about it. They would never witness to anybody, I had no clue about the gospel or concern for God's word, and hadn't gone to church in years. But no, they'd gone to church growing up. Mom and Dad were Christians, and they were just happy to associate themselves. With Christ in that fashion. I don't have a category for that. That may be the kind of background you're from, and that, provi- that presents itself with a whole set of struggles in maybe evaluating your own faith and the genuineness of it and all of that. But my friends, don't be deceived. You cannot love the Lord and love darkness, you cannot walk in the light and walk in darkness. God is not compatible with a life of sin. Maybe you have a rebellious child. You've raised them in the nurture of the Lord, instruction of his word, and prayed for them for years. Or maybe you haven't, but you really wish that you had, and you pray for them now. And there's some grief over the course that they've taken. Um, you, uh, You prayed for and encouraged them, and everything that you've done would perhaps have it that they would be faithful and know the Lord, but they do not apparently know the Lord. We give God credit whenever our children are saved, whenever they follow him, and they break our hearts when they don't. But maybe you have not allowed yourself to admit what is clear from the Bible, and that is your son or daughter doesn't know the Lord. They roll your eyes when you want to pray, breaks your heart, but you tell yourself they prayed the prayer. I remember their sincerity at age five or eight. But for 20 years, they haven't gone to church, and they're not excited about going to church when they're in town. Very important that you be honest with the Lord here and that you speak the truth to yourself and before the Lord in prayer about your son or daughter or family member for that matter. It's the best thing you can do is to come to terms with their unbelief so that you can pray for and preach them, preach to them the gospel, that they may believe it. It's Very important. I think that's an overlooked weakness and spiritual failing of many of us. Um, To let people off the hook because we love them, but that is not the loving thing to do, neither is it biblical. So speak truth about those you love and want to know the Lord, and do not lean on past decisions or memories, but on the testimony of a faithful life. So if we say we have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But what if we do walk in the light? Praise God, we can. Verse 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What does walking in the light mean? It means two things. First, it means not loving the things done in darkness. Though he'll clarify we are still sinners, it means not living in a pattern of love for the dark. And second, it means we call sin for what it is. Walking in the light doesn't mean being perfect in the light. It means being honest about imperfections in the light with a desire to be more pure in the light. Two glorious results follow when we walk in the light. John says we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We, we might have expected him to say we have fellowship with God. Remember, it's, we say we have fellowship with God but walk in darkness so we don't. So if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with God. He doesn't say it. He says, we have fellowship with one another. He's condensing his thought. That's assumed. And the fruit of fellowship with God is fellowship with one another. It's the first thing that happens, and it's huge. Remember Adam in the garden? The couple sinned against God, and they hid from him, and they were estranged from one another, fighting already in the leaves. And trouble followed. Their son Cain killed their other son Abel. It was just a mess. Do you have some marriage problems right now? Well, I have some. Are they getting out of hand? Are you growing in bitterness and a, a feeling of dislike for your spouse? The spiral of sin is a dark and a scary thing, and it goes in one direction apart from the gospel. But do you believe that God can reconcile two sinners together? at this. God can reconcile enemies, his enemies, to himself. Darkness and light. God can reconcile the two of you and God can reconcile you with whoever in this room you've avoided this morning. Whoever in this room you've been kind of strategically even with them without saying it, not sitting near each other, avoiding each other in the hall. Something went down maybe even a long time ago. It's the nature of Christianity, that those things would be resolved because Jesus took offense for us. And so where we need, we can take offense and forgive. And when we walk together in the light, we can have fellowship with one another. It is a miracle. So we have fellowship with one another. And when we walk in the light, we're also cleansed from all sin. That is, as we walk in the light of God's truth, we experience the joys of forgiveness of our sin a life in the light is a life of the forgiveness of sins so is this lie that we've been discussing is this basically you that you don't believe that your sin is really a problem with God it's a dangerous place to be in well coming to the light is something you have the option to do today (laughs) Jesus himself spoke this way, The light has come into the world. The people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does the wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. Jesus invites you, as he is the light of the world, to come out of the dark into the light and to walk in it, to call your sin for what it is. So the first lie is that sin is not really a problem with God. He's compatible with it. The second lie is that sin is not really a problem for me anymore. I know God now, and now that I know God, sin is not really a problem for me anymore. It's not in me anymore. Chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And there may be versions of this with our explicit doctrinal convictions that we have no sin. I've heard this from TV preachers, and sometimes it's just functional. We stopped thinking about sin a long time ago. We stopped caring about it. It may have been years since you have confessed a sin to the Lord. And if it has, it may be that you know the Lord and need to get with the light program. It may be that you don't know the Lord if sin isn't a burden, if it doesn't matter, if it's of no consequence in your mind. This is a lie about the nature of sin, and it's a lie to ourselves. It says, Because I know God, I'm no longer a sinner. The lie is more serious than the first because it's a form of self-deception. You don't even know you're lying to yourself. Sinner is a present tense word, though, my friends, that describes every human being on the face of the planet. And in one sense, it's a lie that seems patently wrong on the surface. Surely sin is alive and well in our lives. But there are more subtle versions of this lie that frame up how we think about maybe any one specific of our sins. Maybe there's a sin that is obvious to God and and from his word, but it's not a sin in your mind, or it's not treated that way, or even paid attention to. It's looked over. Albert Moeller sums up well what is in the air in our age. Most Americans believe that their major problem is something that has happened to them, and that their solution is to be found within. In other words, they believe they have an alien problem that is to be resolved with an inner solution. What the gospel says, however is that we have an inner problem that demands an alien solution, a righteousness that is not our own. When we speak about our sins with the language of mistake or unfortunate circumstance, or even this one, I don't know what came over me. Some subtle ways of redirecting the trouble away from ourselves to something out there that made us to do this. The form of self-deception But as Spurgeon said so well, to be a Christian is to believe that, as salt flavors every drop of the Atlantic, so sin affects every atom of our nature. It is sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, then you are deceived. So if your mind is not set on sin, if you don't think about it, confess it, aren't troubled by it, that's not a good sign for your spiritual health, no matter how in order you may appear, or regular you may be here. So deceiving ourselves is what we don't want to do, but what if we confess our sins? One nine: If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One mark of true Christianity is a forthrightness about sin. One mark of true Christianity is a forthrightness and an honesty about our sin, or in other words, confession. One way we walk in the light is by keeping our sin in the light through confession to God and, as the Bible instructs us, to one another, a trusted Christian friend or spouse. To say, I confess my sins to God is to say, in other words, I am a Christian. Have you ever noticed how much more sinful sin sounds when you say it out loud to somebody else who didn't know you sinned that way. When somebody calls you out on a sin and you know, you know it, it hasn't felt that dark until it's heard with the ears. Sin has a way of opening your eyes. Sorry, confession has a way of opening your eyes to see God's holiness for as weighty as it is. To see sin for as ugly as it is. And to see the grace of Christ as we'll see for as glorious as it is. It's hard to see those things in the dark. And sometimes we stay in the dark because we love the things that are there. We have no idea what we're missing, and we're deceived. And this is why 17th century pastor, that is because this is hard to do, Richard Sibbs says confession is the verbal humiliation. It's verbal humiliation, but it's humiliation before a kind of glory, and it's necessary for a kind of joy. Praise the Lord that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Did you notice those two words, faithful and just? Interesting, for two reasons. First, we might be tempted to think God's forgiveness of our sins is based on our confession. So you feel like you need to confess because that's what God requires as a kind of work, as a kind of payment. It's hard, but it gets you back in his good grace as a kind of work. No, no, no. God's forgiveness of us is based upon his faithfulness and his justice. Second reason it's interesting, those two words, is it doesn't really make sense. If God is light, wouldn't his faithfulness require him to expel darkness? You may have kind of a blurry vision of God where God's light, he's love, he's cool with whatever, he's cool with your sin. Well, not so in the Bible. God's faithfulness ought to mean that he's true to his lightness, his brightness, and expels the darkness. But here faithfulness is a reference to his faithfulness to keep his promise to forgive the one who comes to him with a contrite heart. Think of uh, David who confessed after his adultery, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He's a man who understands what the nature of his sin. And he prays for forgiveness. Purge me with hyssop, that I may be clean. Wash me, that I may be whiter than snow. He goes to God for that who can grant it. And does and did. Songs that are good get at this. Well, think of one of the songs we sing, Jesus, I come out of my bondage, sorrow, and night into thy freedom, gladness, and light, out of my sickness, into thy health, out of my want, and into thy wealth, out of my sin, and into thyself. Jesus, I come today. It's a kind of confession. At first, it may seem that confession would be an unhappy thing. And it is unhappy because sin is unhappy. It's never happy that we would have to confess our sins. But Charles Spurgeon is right. It does not spoil your happiness to confess your sin. The unhappiness is in not making the confession. Sin is not a problem with God. That's one lie we tell ourselves. Sin is not a problem with me anymore. Now that I'm a Christian, sin's not a problem. And the third lie we might tell ourselves, or functionally live out is that sin has never really been a problem for me. And we are really self-deceived here. Uh, And this kind of a lie is blasphemy. 1:10: If we say we have not sinned, we make him God a liar, and his word is not in us. This is to say God is a liar. This is the most dangerous of all three lies because it admits the reality of sin, but insists that whatever we're committed to is not sin. It's, it actually approves of the evil we're enjoying as good, and that's a dangerous form of justification. This one goes back as far as the garden in Genesis three. Serpent directly contradicted God. You will not surely die. Where basically God is wrong and I am right. And whenever we claim God's favor but deny the plain reality of sin inside us, we make God to be a liar. First sin is that first lie about sin is that it's not a problem with God, it's not in conflict with Him. Secondly, it's not a problem for me anymore, and third, it's never really been a problem for me, I'm not a sinner. True Christians see God for who he is. God is light. True Christians hear lies for what they are and don't believe them and live by them. And true Christians go to Christ for all that Christ is. And this is the really good part, folks. If you notice in this passage here, which is one of the really good go-to passage on sin for somebody who doesn't see the gravity of sin and is in sin or somebody who sees the gravity and needs comfort, and help and direction it's a great passage for that like half of the passage is reference to gospel realities to the blood of Jesus and what it accomplishes isn't that funny in a passage that's designed to help you not sin one of the biggest accents and even almost half the material is to say your sins are forgiven Think about that. Christianity is not a religion of obedience through coercion, but obedience through freedom and new life and forgiveness. The gospel allows us to be honest about our sin because we can afford to be honest about our sin. In fact, we can't afford not to be honest about our sin. John is not afraid of the free grace of God that it will lead to license. If it is truly understood, John understands that the motivation for walking in the light and for confessing our sins is the fact of what Christ has done to cover our sins. Verse 1 through 2 of chapter 2, he says so warmly, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So that's his purpose. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John tells us that his purpose in writing here is so that we may not sin. You might think what he might say next would be something like a threat or a a condition. You realize that if you keep in this walking in darkness, if you keep in sin, that you don't know the Lord. He's made that clear enough. At this point, he's addressing the person who knows the Lord, who finds themselves still a sinner, which is everyone in this room and hopefully is troubled by whatever has come into your mind as we've been talking this morning through this text. And God, through his word, is saying to you, he doesn't want you to sin. But if you do sin, friends, you have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. The propitiation for your sins. So what you do when you sin? He's given some instruction. Go back to the light. Confess your sins. But the first thing you should do is nothing at all. Nothing at all. Don't defend yourself because you can't. Christ is your advocate before the Father. It's law court language. Stay quiet. Christ is pleading your case. Look only to Christ. He appeals, Jesus does. He has what it takes on the basis of his own righteousness, which God requires. He requires righteousness and obedience for our acceptance into his presence. Jesus brings his righteousness on our behalf. We're okay. Your sin has not spoiled your relationship with God. It's good you're confessing it. He also is our propitiation. Maybe a new word, but what that means is that he has taken the wrath of God for us. A.W. Tozer says that Jesus is like the lightning rod for God's wrath that redirects the wrath of God away from us to him. So he takes the hit so that all that is left Shining is the light of God's love on the sinner. Accepted. The wrath propitiated or satisfied. And this is not a bribe to God. Jesus does not take God's wrath in order to satisfy God. Which God didn't have in mind in the first place. Like a trick or a bribe. No. John, 1 John 4.10 And this is love. Not that we have loved God. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God sent his son to be The satisfaction for our sins. So in one sense we do nothing. But in another sense. Trusting Jesus is the only thing that we do. We don't defend ourselves. We have no righteousness to offer. We cannot pay the debt with a million lifetimes in hell. Have you ever considered that hell doesn't end. For those that are there. It's because a million zillion infinity lifetimes. Of a finite human being. Who's offended an infinite God. Cannot pay the debt. But Jesus himself. Suffering in our place. The very son of God. Does. And if we go to the Christ then, we can go where Christ can go, and that is into the very presence of God. Hebrews ten nineteen. Therefore, brothers, we say to you, since you have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Sinner, your heart is sprinkled clean. You can be before God with a clean conscience, not because you're not a sinner, but because of Christ's sinless life. And so we sing before the throne of God, above I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. And when we're discouraged, because of our sin we can sing when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made what? An end of all my sin. And because the sinless Savior died, my sinless soul, sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon you and pardon me. John is not afraid of the lavish grace of God showered on sinners that it might be an incentive not to obey. No, it is our very ground for obedience. 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Or as Paul put it, for the church, for the love of Christ, controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. But how should they live? For him? who for their sake died and was raised. See how tightly wound the gospel is and Christ's work of total forgiveness is to your motive for obedience? Or in Hebrews, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, purify our consciences so that we have no guilt from dead works. Why? To serve the living God. My friends, if we, if we get sin wrong, we will never see any of this, the glory of Christ. But if we get sin right, seeing God for who he is, hearing lies for what they are, and going to Christ for all that he is as our righteous sacrifice and advocate. If we get sin right in this way, we very well may get God too for trusting him. And so now as I close, I want to read a prayer that packages all this up very nicely for us, written by Tim Keller, prayer of confession that looks to the cross as well. Let's pray. Dear Father, our sin is ever before us. We have desired control that has only produced fear. We have desired power over others and that has only served to alienate them from us. We have desired our own comfort and that has only brought forth anger when our comfort was not achieved. And we have sought the approval of others and have meticulously kept them from seeing our true selves for fear of rejection idolatry plagues our heart we are consumed with thoughts of self-aggrandizement self-promotion and self-service and father in our deepest parts at times we doubt that you are God and that we want to rule ourselves and so we cry out to you father only you can deliver us Show us the cross, for without Jesus' glorious robe of righteousness to cover our nakedness, we die. Show us the love of our beautiful Savior who gave up his glory and even his life that we might be delivered from idolatry. May the work of Jesus ever stir us towards radical, joyful obedience. And may he be our reason for living and our eternal source of joy, hope, faith. In love, amen.